Good morning. Hey, if you got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're going to continue on in our series entitled, Now That's Church. And it took us, oh, about seven months, I guess, uh, to get up to this famous part of the book of Acts. We started our study in the book of Acts at the beginning, and here we are now finally getting to these kind of iconic verses on the very first church. And as I mentioned last week, what we learned is the church is for believers, The body of Christ is made up of those who are in Christ. And although everyone is invited to experience redemption, we believe that uh, to the core of who we are, the church itself, the body of Christ itself is made up for and of believers. Uh, And so last week we we visited that truth. We also saw that the church is something we are added into. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are therefore by default in the church and the body of Christ. It's now just a question of how active of a member of the body are you going to be. And uh, last week we saw that the church is something we're supposed to do together. We looked at the thesis statement of the book of 1 Corinthians where it says, to those in Christ Jesus called to be saints together. And so uh, that's where we picked up in week one of our series here. And as a reminder also of our introduction last week, I talked about how these passages in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses really 41 through 47, uh, these iconic verses about the, about the first church, uh, that on one hand, we should look at them and go, this is beautiful and incredible, and I would love to see this. And then on the other hand, we have to look and say, uh, we can't idolize the Acts 2 church because it doesn't take long for what we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 to begin to break down. And when I say it doesn't take long, I'm talking like two chapters where uh, the togetherness begins to recede. Uh, and then all throughout the book of Acts, and then much of the rest of the New Testament is prescribing how to create or to maintain togetherness uh, when you're dealing with a bunch of human beings in the midst of God's church. And so uh, we're really today, we're just looking at some kind of some setups here to help us understand what, what church is supposed to be. Last week, I gave this definition. The church is a group of believers coming together, united by their common salvation. And honestly, we spent five, six months getting up to this point where the gospel broke in uh, and it is gospel conviction that precedes church commitment. Let me continue on with the definition. United by their common salvation, empowered by the common spirit and motivated to a common purpose. That is the church. One of the words in that definition, I took it from both this Acts passage and the First Corinthians passage, is that word together. And today what I simply want to do is talk about what builds togetherness, uh, what binds a people together, particularly in the context of the church. Uh, and what we see here is the first thing that bound the church together is that there was a mutual devotion As we look at Acts chapter 2 here in verse 42, uh, if you said, what's our primary text for the morning? It is simply these words that we want to understand. They devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to. And what did they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The apostles' teaching is that which is written and recorded about Christ. And so they, uh, they devoted themselves to the teachings about Jesus, and then they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's not just friendship. It is um, Christ-centered relationship. Uh, it, it is the body of Christ itself. And so they devoted themselves to the teachings about Jesus and to the body of Christ. Let me just say this more clearly. They devoted themselves to Jesus. See, what makes the Christian church unique is not that they share beliefs. 
There's lots of organizations that share beliefs. What makes the Christian church unique is not that we have common practices or even a common worldview. There are many organizations, entities, movements, whatever, that have a common worldview, common practices, and shared beliefs. What makes the Christian church unique is that we are the only one that is based on the true, actual, factual story of a risen king, Jesus. That's what makes the church unique. We are centered around or centered on uh, uh, and built on Christ, Christ himself. And so they devoted themselves to Jesus, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is what does it mean to be devoted? What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? First, then, would be to understand, well, what what does it mean to be devoted to anything? So let me give you a bit of a definition. To be devoted is a consistent, persistent, ardent pursuit of a particular end. It is consistent because you just keep on going. It is persistent because no matter what would try to stop you in life, you can't help but be devoted to it. It is ardent because even in the most difficult seasons, your devotion still is focused on this thing. To be devoted is to be diligent, to pay close attention to always looking in at, and to allow a thing to fully permeate your being. It just swims all the way through. It comes out in your language because what is in your heart naturally flows through your language. It is what um, develops your thinking. It fully permeates your being. And the first church, they were devoted to Christ. And here's the beauty, that as they became devoted to Christ, to use the, de- the, the definition, as they consistently and persistently and ardently pursued Jesus, as they were diligent towards, as they pursued and allowed uh, their pursuit of him to permeate their full being, it created togetherness. See, togetherness is not an aim of something we say, oh, we teach toward how to be together. There is some instructional stuff that might be helpful, but in the end, real and true and genuine togetherness comes out of the shared devotion. And the shared devotion comes out of gospel transformation. And so when the gospel changes a heart, it naturally changes your devotion. And when we're devoted mutually to Christ, it brings us together. And this was a type of togetherness that I would suggest the world has really never seen Up until that point and really since then, a powerful togetherness. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's a beautiful picture. Day by day. And they just liked each other so much they had to see each other every day. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their flu- food, their flute, their food with glad and generous hearts. Oh, their mutual love and devotion for Christ, their conviction of the gospel in their heart made them devoted to the same thing. And when you have shared devotion in Christ, it will naturally bring you together. It'll naturally bring you together. Now, what produced this new devotion? I kind of already um, alluded to it, but it is simply gospel transformation. 
Gospel conviction produces gospel transformation, and gospel transformation changes our devotion. We have to look no further to understand this than the 3,000 that were gathered there on that day, the 3,000 Jewish individuals who had become followers of Christ. These 3,000 Jews knew what it meant to be devoted. Their entire lives were wrapped up in their Jewish faith, their livelihood, their calendars, the way they ran their families, the way they ran their their marriage, uh, the way they did everything was all aligned with their Jewish faith. They were very much devoted. In fact, in some ways, uh, when we study the Old Testament, we learn their devotion and there's elements of it that we say, wow, I want to be as devoted as they were. I just want to be devoted in the right way, understanding how it's pointing to Christ. They were devoted people, but then they were transformed by the gospel And as they were transformed by the gospel, their devotion left their, their Jewish faith and was placed solely on Jesus. Because gospel transformation changes our devotion. This then leads us to a realization in our own lives that uh, if I'm working backwards, that which I am together with and that which I am devoted to reveals then to what level the gospel has transformed my heart. Working in the other way then, the gospel transforms my heart, which leads me to be devoted to new things, namely the teachings about Christ and the body of Christ, which would then lead me to be together with the body of Christ. This then leaves us to ask the question, where there is no devotion to either the truth about Jesus or the fellowship, or the body of Christ, I must go back and say, am I in need of a new or a a first-time gospel transformation? If I am not devoted as they were devoted, then the conviction that they experienced is probably not my own. For the conviction of the gospel produces this type of devotion, and therefore, that type of togetherness. So this morning, I want to talk about what then grows or stalls our devotion. For if gospel devotion uh, leads us into togetherness, then what can disrupt it? What, what grows or stalls our devotion, which therefore would deteriorate the togetherness that we were supposed to experience? Can devotion grow or stall? Well, of course it can. Absolutely it can. It can and it does in every area and every part of our lives. How does devotion grow? Devotion grows both organically and systematically. Said another way, it it, it grows both through overflow and through practice. If we use relationships as an example, uh, there's uh, an element of relationship that is just very natural. You like the person, there's an emotion, there's a joy, there's a happiness uh, that you simply get around them. Uh, and it is a, a devotion that just kind of overflows, right, and creates a togetherness. But there is also a devotion that comes through simple practice, through practices, we look at the marital relation as a relationship as an example to this, right? There's a certain level of overflow in my love and joy and happiness and, uh, that I get from my relationship with my wife. But then there's also practices that, uh, that reinstate that devotion. 
And for Lindsay and I, I've shared this before, like we walk every single Friday together, just the two of us, though to be fair, Shay has tagged along the last couple of weeks. And, and, and we walk and we're having a conversation together and are getting caught up on the week and all of these types of things. And it is an act of devotion. It's saying this time is set apart for us and we are rekindling the togetherness through this act of devotion. And when we don't have it, uh, it's not that our entire relationship derails, but we can sense that the togetherness is stalling a bit. Why? Because that practice of devotion wasn't present. And so this is why we try to be faithful and consistent in it, right? In the same way, in our relationships with God, there's a part of it that is emotional, that is overflow, that is uh, being in a worship experience and sensing his presence. Uh, that's positioning yourself, whether you like to do it in a walk through the park or uh, at a worship night or just listening to your worship music, whatever it might be. And there's a, there's a natural emotion. And, uh, and people who say, well, my faith is not emotive. How can you not get emotive about the fact that the Father up above loves you and brought you into salvation? The only way I believe we cannot be emotive about our faith is when we think that we're the ones who made ourselves righteous. And we think, well, why would I get emotion about my own accomplishment? You accomplished nothing. Okay, he did the work. That's worthy of emotion. And there's a natural overflow of it then, that is, but then, but then uh, there's also a part of our relationship with, with, with the Father that is practice, right? It's, uh, it's positioning myself daily in the scriptures. It's, 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 it's reading, it's prayer, it's the practice of, of consistent gathering in the body of Christ. It's positioning myself in moments like worship nights or whatever it might be. All of these are just practices that say, I am devoted to you. And as I... Uh, practice those practices, uh, my devotion enhances and my togetherness does therefore. And when those practices begin to diminish, we begin to see how our, our uh, togetherness begins to diminish. And some of us, we're, we're in the process right now, we're rekindling that faith. And you're here today and I'm so glad that you are. And what you're doing is you're just taking a step and you're saying, God, I want some of that togetherness back. Awesome. Welcome back. Now, those of us, we're, we've been in the same ritual and practices for so long, for so long, for so long, and that's good. I mean, I, I share with you guys every day. I do the same thing every morning. I've pretty much done the same thing every morning for like 15 years now, right? And there's still this, this element of like, it still breeds devotion and togetherness through the consistency of it, right? But I know for me that every once in a while, I've got to step out of the habit, right? I got to step out of the practice and like let something new come in, a new type of practice or whatever, and it rekindles the devotion and therefore then inspires and breeds a new type of togetherness with the Father. The same that is true individually then is also true corporately. It is also true corporately that as we then um, practice, uh, uh, as we do the practices of devotion, uh, it, it breeds a greater and a greater togetherness. And the same is true on the opposite. Where we don't practice the practices of togetherness, uh, then it begins to derail togetherness. And so sometimes it's easy to be like, oh man, I used to feel so together. And then it's like, well, where'd you go? Or I used to be so together, but then, but then something got lodged in the heart and it began to deteriorate the togetherness. This morning, I want to give three warnings of uh, things that can creep into our lives that both deteriorate our togetherness with the Father and deteriorate, therefore, our togetherness with one another. 
And I want to lay these warnings out as, um, uh, as a way for you to evaluate this morning, uh, are any of these things present in my life? Do any of them need to be um, corrected, repented of, turned from, um, a warning flag thrown out uh, as if to say, hey, if you keep following this path, uh, the natural path is your devotion is starting to go a new direction and your togetherness will follow. And to be warned this morning that that can happen. And so I want to give three warnings this morning uh, that I think will help us uh, to to, um, make sure our devotion and therefore our togetherness does not diminish. And again, I am speaking individually and corporately. Warning number one is this. A false love will turn your heart from that which bound you together. A false love will turn your heart from that which bound you together. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament here because we love the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. There's so much in this verse. Love, this is one of those gems of the Old Testament. First, we see that David, even in the midst of his sin, his many sins, God still looks and goes, man, that guy's got a heart for me, right? We see the beauty of that, grace and mercy flowing through this verse. And then we see Solomon. Solomon, who was um, tasked with the togetherness of the people of Israel and the covenant relationship with God, but he allowed his heart to be turned. And as his heart was turned, in this case, it was women, sex, uh, whatever was going on underneath there, uh, that turned his heart. And as his heart was turned, what happened to the nation of Israel? It literally divided into two. As the heart turns, togetherness breaks. When we begin to develop a greater love, that's why I'm calling these false loves, when we begin to develop a a greater love, uh, then our devotion will naturally follow and the togetherness that we were to have with the mutual, because we were mutually together because of our mutual devotion, we will no longer have that. And these false loves, uh, you know, to to list some of them out, those are which most common, uh, let me give a more broader definition. These false loves are anything that takes the deepest position of your heart, anything that you become most fiercely devoted to. Let me use the words of our definition. Anything that you most consistently, persistently, ardently, diligently pay attention to, that which is the deepest, that becomes the false love. And there are many, whether it is sex or fame or power or any other self-fulfilling activity that is to lead to your deepest identity. These are false loves. And as we become devoted more to them, then it will naturally strip us of our togetherness one with another and also with the Father himself. And so having been in ministry for 16 or 17 years now, of course, I have seen stories of people who were once together with the body of Christ and once were together with the truth of scripture. And then you begin to see the togetherness breaking down. And when the togetherness breaks down, it is just the visible physical picture of the changed devotion underneath. That might be helpful for you in life. 
As your togetherness begins to break down with the body of Christ and with the truth of Scripture and your personal relationship with the Father, what it is revealing underneath is a changed devotion. We know where proper devotion is supposed to lead. Love for, affinity to, and commitment to the truth of Scripture, the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship of the body of Christ. And so it serves as a, uh, a lens for us. And, and so, of course, at times in my life, I've, I, I have seen, whether it's my own life or, or other people's life, where, where you begin to see, uh, man, they used to be so together, what happened? Ah, they began to pursue that false love. And it took them away. And sometimes in God's beauty and his grace, what he does is he takes people and he sweeps them back in. And sometimes weeks or months or years go by, decades even. I mean, I've been doing this for 16, 17 years now, right? Uh, 10 years or so. And you see people come back and you go, hey, what happened? And they wouldn't use this language, but they'd say, man, I lost my way. My devotion led somewhere else. And then God in his grace and his mercy, he drew me back. This morning, I want to issue a warning to you. If you see your togetherness breaking down, would you evaluate if there's a false love in your heart and come back? Repent and come back. We love to take walks as a family. And uh, we're now a two-stroller family on our walks, okay? So we're going like double wide down the, down the sidewalk, just knocking people off, okay? Get out of our way. And when we get to the end of the walk, uh, we go back into our neighborhood. And Reagan, who's about to be five now, she loves to, to get out then and then to, to run home for the last, you know, whatever quarter mile or so of the walk. And so she always says, Daddy, is it time for me to get out? Is it time for me to get out? And when I say, yes, it is, she gets out. And, uh, and then her and I, you know, we run home. So I just leave Lindsay with two shoulders and two babies. She'll figure it out, right? And just kidding. That's never happened. And um, so, so uh, Reagan and I will start to run home, and I've realized that if I talk to her or tell her a story, uh, that she forgets, to, uh, she forgets that she's running, and, uh, and she just keeps on going along. So, so we do uh, Bible stories, you know, Stephen's version of Bible stories as we're running home. And uh, the other week, I was telling her uh, the story uh, about uh, up on the mountain with the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah calling the fire down, and I was telling her the whole point of the story uh, is to show that our God is the true God, and their God is the fake. God, and their fake God has no power compared to our God. And so we're running home, and I'm telling uh, Reagan the, 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 you know, Stephen version of this story, and, uh, and then we get to the, you know, our driveway, and our run is over, and Reagan looks at me, and she goes, but daddy, it's so dumb to worship a fake God. It is, isn't it? It's so dumb to worship a fake God. And yet we do. And we pursue ardently, persistently, and consistently. And we allow to permeate our whole being these things. And they become our greatest devotion. And we become together with it. Would you turn from it this morning? Would you just leave it behind? Would you allow your devotion for him, his truth, and his, his body to grow again? Number two. Number two. 
Warning number two, inappropriate narrowness will destroy togetherness and reveal an unhealthy devotion to the wrong things. Let me read that one again. Inappropriate narrowness will destroy togetherness and reveal an unhealthy devotion to the wrong things. Let me summarize this point. That which you are willing to break togetherness over reveals which you are most devoted to. That which you are willing to break togetherness over reveals that which you are most devoted to. In inappropriate narrowness destroys togetherness. You say, well, why do we know that togetherness is this great aim? John Jesus told us in John 17, 21, when he prayed this, that they may all be one, that they may all be one. Jesus had an opportunity to pray for his church and his followers. And what he prayed was that we would all be one. He did not pray that we would all adhere to a particular common doctrine or a common method. He did not pray that we would all be able to do whatever it is that we want in our own pet little project. He prayed that we would be one. That was his great prayer. And whether we would admit this, what becomes oftentimes in our lives, our great prayers are not uh, that we would be one, but what becomes our great prayer is, is what I would call something that we inappropriately narrow in on. And we say, I will remain together as long as this, this particular doctrinal expression, this particular methodological uh, element, this particular, uh, if I get to do my particular pet passion in that place, then I will remain together. Now, I will say this, that there are, of course, lines that have to be drawn. And I'll, I'll chat about that here in a second. I will also say this, that uh, simply by nature of age and everything else, that there are probably certainly times in each of our lives where we have chosen not to be together with those who we were previously together with. And the aim uh, of today is not to, to bring up or to make us feel bad or about not being together. The aim is for us here who have been called into this body for us to figure out how do we maintain our togetherness for we are here now. And so we don't have to think about the past. We can think about right now. We can learn from the past, certainly. We all want to, right? But to say, how do we then maintain our togetherness here? If God has called us here, right? And an inappropriate narrowness will destroy togetherness. Let's look at this from three different lenses. Lens number one, uh, what I'll call doctrinal obsessions. And uh, I know that we do have to draw a line. And so we have drawn a line. I will talk about that line next week when we talk about the apostles' teaching. I mention around here often that we have core doctrines, and perhaps you're wondering, what are those core doctrines? And next week, I'm going to talk about those core doctrines. And the interesting thing is that no one is talking about those right now, and then I'm going to talk about them. Then everyone's going to be talking about them, and then there's going to be a lot of talk about them, okay? And, uh, and so for some regard, you just, you know, you say, hey, we have these core doctrines. Everybody goes, okay, yeah, cool, right? Now I'm actually going to talk about them, and this will happen. Someone's going to go, oh, why didn't you use that word? Why didn't you use that word? Why did you use those words? And I will tell you that we arrived at them based upon the idea uh, that these uh, doctrines are what the church has unified and rallied around since its inception, found in our creeds and our great confessions. 
And we have chosen as a church to indeed draw a line there. And there are churches today, there are denominations today, there are other things today where people uh, have said, no, no, we're going to redraw the line. And where we have said, I'm so sorry, we can't redraw that line with you. Where Christ is no longer the only way, we can't redraw that line. Where you no longer believe in the, uh, in the infallibility of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture, we can't redraw that line with you. On and on and on, right? And there's a couple of these that we'd have to say, we, we do have to draw the line here. And somebody might say, well, Stephen, then we're not all being one. Well, we have to remember that our oneness is found in appropriate understanding of the apostles' teaching. And if we no longer have the appropriate biblical understanding of the apostles' teaching, then we can't be one anyway. Because it's based in that. And inappropriate narrowness, then, I would say, are the things that we have identified. uh, And some of you may disagree on these things. And I understand that. And I know that when you uh, disagree in that, that you only have two options. One is to change, right? And if you really are being asked to change a deep-seated conviction, I don't even know if I would want you to change that if you really feel like this is essential and absolute. Or, right, to break togetherness. And, and, and where there is a deep-seated conviction, I can't get past that, right? Then, then maybe that is the godly thing to do. But for the rest of us, what we're saying is we're choosing this uh, and we're choosing this line of doctrine and we're saying we're not going to choose to unify, to discuss, not to divide, and not to elevate our particular doctrinal obsession that would destroy instead of create togetherness. We call this post-denominational, by the way. If you're wondering where that phrase came from. Now, I can tell you, I have learned this one. Oh, the fun way. I was a youth pastor back in my, in my early days. Okay, in my early 20s, I was a youth pastor. And we had this great student ministry. It was a lot of fun. And um, there was this particular doctrinal bent that was moving during that time. And I hopped on full bore, right? And, uh, and then I started teaching it to all my students. And it was like... <laughs> like wildfire, right? Uh, and I remember saying at one point, some people were like, well, Stephen, you know, some people don't agree with you. And I remember responding, that's okay. Not everyone's a Christian. Okay. The hubris of a 22-year-old. Okay. And um, I later found myself in the principal's office, which means the head pastor's office. And I was sitting in that office with he and the two elders. And they looked at me and they said, stop it. If you like your job, I said, I do like my job. I will stop it. And, uh, and I learned then that, that that narrowness was not breeding togetherness. It was destroying it. And some of you might be out there and you're going, well, Stephen, I don't know. I just, I have to know a couple of things. And until I know a couple of things, I can't move on. And that might be uh, okay. Maybe you are like, I can't be together unless we do talk more about prophecy. I can't be together until Stephen, I figure out, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Because I keep listening and I can't figure it out. Good luck. Okay. Or other doctrines. And you're thinking, okay, but hold on. If I wait long enough, he will... He will. And I know this is what everybody does. Everyone just does this. If you, if you don't know, you just go, I bet he agrees with me. And maybe that's a good place to rest, right? Just rest there. Um, if, you believe, if you agree with the scriptures, I agree with you. Cool? That's number one. Number two, methodological preferences, right? And this can destroy togetherness. And uh, I will say, I I get it. Sometimes there are uh, ones here that are strong. We have uh, dear friends of the church. 
And, um, and, and in a very beautiful way, they just had to break togetherness. And it was over not taking communion every, every Sunday. And I love them. They were so supportive. They were encouraging uh, and, all, and everything. And in the end, they just said, you know what? We just have to. We have to. And they couldn't move past it. And, and, and who am I to say if that's right or wrong, right? I just said, okay, I get it. And in the most beautiful way, they, they left. Uh, and, uh, and actually, for like a year afterwards, they kept sending in their tithe. And every time I would say, like, thank you. And they're like, listen, we love what's going on. And, uh, and until we find a new place that is really ours, we're just going to keep supporting it because we're so excited about it, right? And it was a beautiful way of actually breaking togetherness over a method over should communion be taken every week or not. And, and there might be other methods, and sometimes we break over them, uh, and, uh, and if it really is that deep of a conviction, uh, then, you know, okay. My encouragement in all of this, though, is this, that we would stop and evaluate the trajectory of our lives, the history of our patterns, uh, and the history even of the church, and ask ourselves the question, are these things really worth breaking togetherness over, and has that helped or hurt? Has it helped or hurt? Has it helped to hurt your own life? Has it helped to hurt your own family? Has it helped or hurt your own relationship with Christ? And one of the things you'll realize is this, the narrower you get in what you say is absolute, typically the smaller amount of people you are together with. You say, well, it's not about numbers. No, it isn't. But isn't it amazing that in the book of Acts, they became together with 3,000 could you imagine trying to get 3,000 people today to agree on togetherness? It's beautiful that they could and they did, right? And there were certain big issues that they had to solve later. They had to solve, what are we going to do with circumcision? What are we going to do with food offered to idols? What are we going to do when a certain uh, part of the group feels like they're neglected? What are we going to do with this? And they made decisions and they operated in ways and they laid out, uh, you know, lines in the sand and all of that kind of stuff. But they always did it in a way that was hopefully fostering commitment and togetherness. And I would encourage us to do the same. Here's the third. The third is, I'll call it the personal ministry pet passion. And uh, uh, this time, you know, you see people break togetherness over it because they go, well, unless if it's exactly this way or unless I get to do exactly what I like, I can no longer be together. Some of you, you have already shown an incredible amount of maturity because you walked in on the first week and you realized there, were no, there was no coffee and you still came back. Good job. Amen. I do want you to know if you're new around here, you are allowed to bring your own coffee. We strongly encourage it, okay? Because you have more energy when you do. Um, but we have these particular things. You go, ah, oh, well, if we cared more about social justice, if we were more politically engaged, or uh, if this particular, particular ministry model was present, or if this thing that I did at this other place could be here, then I would stay. But if it's not, then I got to go. And I'm willing to be more devoted to that thing than I am togetherness. And, and sadly, sadly, sometimes people repeat this pattern every two to three to four to five years. And they come in fresh, and as long as the doctrine and the methods and the personal pet passions completely line up, there's togetherness. But then over time, it's interesting, and oftentimes it's because the practices of togetherness have broken down, or they've become devoted to something else, one of these false devotions, and togetherness then breaks down. 
In all of this, then, let me get to the third warning real quick, and then I'll, and then I'll talk to the solution about all of these. The third one is this. I'll be quick on this one. Busyness and apathy are silent killers that will destroy your devotion. Busyness and apathy are silent killers that will destroy your devotion. I'm not going to spend, again, a lot of time on this, but I will issue a fair warning that many of us have seen wane devotion and therefore decreased togetherness simply because we have grown busy or apathetic. And we would never say this out loud, but in short... We have become more devoted to the things of this world and our time and our uh, pocketbooks uh, and our conversation and all of it reveals it to be true. And whatever one of these it is, whether it is the false love, the false devotion, or here a false purpose where you're now chasing after something else, whatever it is, the solution is the same. Repent and turn back in. And here's the beauty of when a Christ follower repents and, 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 uh, and dies to self in this way. It's not just dying to self uh, uh, and, and the death produces nothing good. In the scriptures, we have a promise that when we die to self in these particular ways, that it actually produces much fruit. Let me show you what I mean. I want to end here today. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This verse right here, John 12, 24, is actually one of our founding verses as a church. John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let me uh, rephrase that. Whoever chooses his false devotion will lose togetherness with Christ. But whoever hates his false devotion in comparison to how much he loves Christ will gain togetherness with Christ for now and eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Let me say that another way. If anyone would serve me, he must be devoted to me and me alone. He must consistently, persistently, ardently be diligent to be concerned about and allow me, Christ, to permeate his and her very being, every part of it. And the only way to arrive at that point is to realize that all along in our Christian lives, or if you're not a Christian to this day, is that these false devotions will want to rise up inside of you. And when they do, then you look back at the beauty of the gospel, like the guy in the field who found the treasure. And he goes, wow, this treasure is so awesome. He ran back and he sold everything that he had so he could buy the field and get the treasure. And it's a picture of the gospel. This gospel is so beautiful. It's so beautiful that I was dead in my sin, but Christ died in my place and in my sin and my shame. He told me to stand back up. It's so beautiful that I will turn away from, repent from, run away from any false devotion to be devoted to that. And when then your heart begins to be devoted to that again, you will put to death all of these false things. And when you do, not only, not only will it be you putting to death something that should not be alive in you, but when you put it to death, it will bear much fruit. 
and the path to kingdom growth the path to the expansion of the gospel in your heart and collectively is always through death. It's through that. It's through this died, but as it died, Christ brought something new to life. Oh, and in his grace and his beauty, he can take even good things that are put to death and birth them in a more beautiful way. And I can tell you something. We stand here today in this place with this church as it is because of how people have faithfully put things to death time and time and time again. And that's church. It's church that Ed Moore, a 50-year-old, a 50-year Baptist preacher who's been preaching in churches longer than I have been alive, now comes and sits and put that to death and sits in our seats each and every week and has become a faithful servant and volunteer, connecting with other people and letting that identity die. That's church. And it's bared much fruit. It's church that, uh, that, that Dave, a guy in our church who had a particular ministry expression that he really wanted to see happen here that is a good and a beautiful thing, but not in alignment with the way that we are currently doing things, had to put that uh, particular desire to death, and he has, and he has forged togetherness inside of it, and now something new and different is going to be birthed out of it, and it'll bear much fruit. That's church. And it's church. When you put down a doctrinal obsession or you put down a methodological preference or you even set aside your personal passion and when you do, when you let that die, God promises in that death, he will bear much fruit. And so this morning, if one of those false loves If one of those false devotions, if one of those false purposes is present in you, not just for your sake, but because we are together for everybody's sake, please put it to death. Because when you do, the rest of us get to be a part of the fruit that he will bear. And that's church. I don't like to talk about myself because I'm pretty messed up, right? (laughs) This is the point of this talk about Jesus, but so I want to spend a moment here and be a, a slightly testimonial for you guys and, uh, as a, uh, and just share with you that, because perhaps you could look at this and go, well, Stephen, it's easy for you to talk about putting things to death because you're the one who gets to decide what dies, okay? And maybe that's your thought, and I would say a couple of responses to that. Number one, um, then you don't understand the makeup and the nature and the way our elder team works, Okay. And that it is mutual submission one to another on what happens here. And we do have different roles in all of that, uh, but that we walk in unity in that. And that's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Um, Number two, um, for you guys to know that I know that if we believe that this is his church, and if I believe that, that I'm not in church. And anything the Holy Spirit wants to do Anything Jesus wants to see happen in his church, even if I have to put aside my doctrinal obsession or my personal preference or my pet thing, then I have to do that because it's his church, not mine. Thirdly, I'll say this. I have known and felt compelled um, by the Spirit to, um, over the last few months, to um, work to distance myself from activities that I pursue outside of this place. And I felt God calling me to that. 
and walked at it um, in uh, submission to the Spirit and trying to figure out what that would look like uh, and in conversation with my wife and others who love me and, and know me um, because I know that I can't stand in front of each and every one of you and tell you to put something in to death if I am not willing to do the same. And so, um, thankfully, because God is good and gracious and kind, he has led uh, to some things, um, which has left me at a place of um, looking at each and every one of you and saying, um, I know what God has called me to put to death, and I'm doing it, and I'm asking you to do the same thing, because I know that this verse is faithful and true, and that if we want to see God bear much fruit. It will start when each and every one of us finally lays down exactly what it is that he's calling you to lay down. And when you do, and you do, and you do, and you do, and we all do, that is a beautiful, beautiful garden that he will spring up. And that, to me, is exciting. And that's church. It's us mutually submitting one to another, responding to the Holy Spirit, putting to death what ought to be put to death, and then watching God grow and bear the fruit that only he can grow and bear. Let's pray. Father, I can fully trust that your Holy Spirit has done his work today and so that people in here know exactly what it is. If it's a false love, to repent of it. If it's a false devotion, to see if they can move past it. If it's a false purpose, to come back in and to focus their minds on your eternal purposes. And Father, I pray that over the next days and weeks and months and years, we would hear the stories of people putting things to death and watching you bear incredible fruit as a result. And Father, help us to always be reminded that obedience now leads to protection and provision later. And so we can always trust that doing the right thing is the right thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.